The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Turkey and Syria, as the countries reel from the devastation of the 6th of February earthquake. How can communities and agencies protect damaged heritage? Plus, Alice Neal in London and a Navajo eye-dazzler blanket in New York. As the death toll rises from the magnitude 7.8 earthquake in southern Turkey and northern Syria, I talked to Aparna Tandon from ICROM, the International Centre for the Study of the Preservation and Restoration of Cultural Property. We discuss how culture is at the heart of the humanitarian response to the crisis. As the exhibition Alice Neal, Hot Off the Griddle, arrives at the Barbican Art Gallery in London, I take a tour of the show's key moments with its curator, Eleanor Nairn. The only thing she's wearing are her glasses, and above her glasses is a raised eyebrow. And that raised eyebrow, even as I say it, gives me chills because it feels like she looks directly at us and is challenging us to meet her in this courageous space. And this episode's work of the week is a Germantown eye-dazzler blanket made around 1900 by a weaver from the Navajo Nation. It's part of a new show at the Bard Graduate Centre in New York, shaped by the loom Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest. Hadley Jensen, the curator of the exhibition, tells us more. Before all that, the new series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues. The latest episode is an in-depth interview with the pioneering performance and video artist Joan Jonas. You can subscribe and listen to the full back catalogue of 60 conversations wherever you're listening now. Do subscribe to this podcast while you're at it and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, 10 days on from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, the combined death toll from the disaster has now passed 41,000 and is expected to double, while millions of people have been displaced, exacerbating a refugee crisis caused by war in the wider region. And while the humanitarian crisis remains the priority for aid agencies, international institutions like UNESCO have begun to assess the effect on the heritage and culture of the two countries. But how do organisations balance the urgent humanitarian needs alongside the necessity to address the cultural effects of the disaster. Aparna Tandon is the director of a programme called First Aid and Resilience for Cultural Heritage in Times of Crisis at ICROM, the International Centre for the Study of the Preservation and Restoration of Cultural Property. And I spoke to her about the relief efforts. Aparna, obviously I wanted to begin by talking about the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis and that's the priority at the moment. How does it compare to others that you've experienced in the past? I would compare it to the Indian Ocean tsunami and the multiple countries that were affected. And here the loss of life has been immense. And because of the ongoing situation in these two countries, especially in Syria, the fragility is there in the society and the social setup and humanitarian aid has been delayed. So in that sense, it's a complex emergency through and through. Absolutely. And of course, Ikram is in a way Complex emergencies is the sort of territory where you can have an effect. So tell us about how you balance those things, the humanitarian aspect on the one hand and the cultural aspect on the other. Because, of course, a lot of people listening to this might say, well, you know, who cares about cultural heritage when people are dying and you know, millions of people are displaced? So, yeah, in some ways, uh, Ikram has been working in complex emergency situations since uh, 2010, 
after the earthquake in Haiti, where this country had uh, UN humanitarian forces, even though there was no conflict going on at that time in 2010 in Haiti, and uh, the population was devastated. The loss of life was immense in hundred thousands. There were basically no institutions running as the cultural ministry itself uh, had lost the only building that it had at that time. So we had to go in with the help of the Smithsonian Institution, the U.S. institutions, as well as UNESCO, and carry out a damage and risk assessment. And that's when we came up with this methodology that's the first aid to cultural heritage in times of crisis methodology, which is specially tailored to fragile country contexts or complex emergency situations where natural hazards overlap with conflict risk. And in these kind of situations, we train people and communities on the ground to respond, as well as we enhance the capacities of humanitarian aid agencies that are working on the ground to include culture in their responses. That's right. And you're very clear that there is an interdependence of the cultural and humanitarian assistance in the sense that you can't give humanitarian assistance without bearing in mind that not only people, but their wider cultures are affected by such situations. Yes, absolutely. This earthquake, for example, has devastated an area of our world that is the centre of much of humanity's shared ancient history. The area between Turkey and Syria forms an exceptional cultural landscape providing concrete testimony to lifestyles and cultural traditions developed over thousands of years, over millennia. So we should not look at the affected communities as mere biological entities. They have more needs. They have complex societies. They were part of vibrant societies. So we need to understand how they were living and they have this right to live with dignity. And part of living with dignity also means being able to enjoy your cultural life, being able to work with the support networks you develop as a society. Cultural heritage is part of that intricate social network and culture is born of the people, by the people and for the people. It's like a a product of a society. So it cannot be seen separate from humanitarian assistance which is given in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. You give the example in a handbook that you wrote about this of Nepal and the fact that local people in 2015, after the earthquake in Nepal, were seeking ways that they could enact their rituals effectively and using those moments, in a sense, to automatically rebuild cultural heritage in order to, for instance, enter places of worship and so on. Yes, that's what we have seen. I'm right now in Japan, in Sendai, where there was a major earthquake and a, a triple disaster, in fact, an earthquake, a tsunami, and a, and, and a nuclear disaster altogether. And uh, there I have, for first hand after 2011, after so many years, I've come and visited. I've visited communities in Fukushima and in other places where clinical psychologists have been working with people to understand how working with their history or recovering their historical documents have helped affected communities to overcome shared trauma. So cultural heritage is a thread of continuity. It's a factor of resilience. And it is important for people to 
realize that they have connection with the place when there is so much loss and they have lost loved ones, near ones, their family members. At that time, cultural heritage offers a sense of continuity and it allows them to connect with their past and recapture those positive moments which allows them to meet with present-day trauma and also understand who they are as people or what they would be as a society or what they have withstood over time together as a community. And this is very important for overcoming some of the mental health issues that one suffers from immediately after a big disaster where there is a lot of loss of life, infrastructure, and the place that you knew as your home is no more that same place. One of the really interesting things that you work on is this idea that there is iconic or monumental heritage, and then there's vernacular heritage. I imagine there are people reading the news in the global north who are seeing the damage to the citadel in Aleppo and the castle at Gaziantep and saying, okay, we have to urgently attend to these. But from your perspective, the priorities are both those kind of great historic monuments that are known throughout the world and also vernacular heritage that people are experiencing every day, right? Yes. For example, we have asked many times survivors of earthquakes or tsunamis, uh, floods in many parts of the world, in the Caribbean, everywhere else. We asked them, so what would you take if you had only two, three minutes? And everyone says emphatically the family photos or keepsakes or, you know, family heirlooms. And sometimes in a community which is close-knit, it becomes a collective heritage. And even somebody else's heritage becomes your heritage. So it's not so much about you, I, or everything. It's about collective identities. And it's about coming together as communities and having that social network. So vernacular heritage has a very definitive role. And this is what we, ICROM, is trying to do more with its first aid to cultural heritage methodology. We are also enlisting the help of clinical psychologists to better understand this relationship between personal resilience, you know, resilience of an individual in relation to resilience of a society as a whole or as community as a whole. Right. And in terms of how you respond on the ground then, how important is it to have local cultural first aiders, as you call them, people from those local communities who can help enact those restorative changes to the environment as you respond to the disaster? It's crucial. It's crucial, I would say, because we need people who are embedded in their local context and understand those nuances and understand what people prioritise as heritage versus what states prioritise as heritage. And of course, there is a relationship between national heritage and local heritage, but still you need people who can really understand what is crucial for a community's recovery. And at this moment, we also need to understand people who can then differentiate. For example, in Turkey or in Syria, in Gaziantep, places where we have conflicts. We also need to understand how working with one type of heritage would create imbalances as we recover as a society or, you know, as we recover that particular community. 
So we also have to address the underlying vulnerabilities that are created by prioritizing one type of heritage or one type of culture. So that kind of understanding can only come if we are working with people who are embedded in their local contexts. Right. And tell me, I mean, you mentioned states there. I mean, I know that you have already been to Aleppo. There have been projects that Ikram have done in Aleppo. As you yes. say, that's, it's an incredibly fragile, war-torn country as it is anyway. Are there people who you work with anyway, who you are in touch with now, who are, I guess, going into cultural first aider mode on a new footing, if you like, post-earthquake footing? Yes, definitely in both countries, in Turkey and in Syria, we have cultural first aiders that we had trained previously who are now working with ECROM to analyze the situation as it unfolds and are also setting up coordination mechanisms with other uh, humanitarian aid agencies. These people, some of them are working with Directorate General of Antiquities. Uh, some of them are freelancers or architects or young people who were engaged earlier on in Aleppo in recording or documenting their heritage. So we will be working with different sections of society as this crisis unfolds and cultural response is mounted. Ikram would be helping the ability of these people, cultural first aiders on the ground, as well as official agencies like the DGAM, who are, several of them have trained with Ikram, and NGOs to work together we will be utilizing some of the 3D laser documentation that they have already done to assess damage to vernacular heritage, to local heritage, as well as to the world heritage or the officially listed heritage, and then try to understand priorities for response in collaboration with these cultural first aiders on the ground. So there are a mix of diverse professionals some of them are working with humanitarian aid organizations such as UNICEF, but uh, some of them are architects, some of them are community workers, and as I said, some of them work for the Directorate General of Antiquities of Syria, or on the other hand in Turkey. And how difficult is it? I mean, we've seen over the past few days how difficult it's been to get aid agencies into Syria to help with the displaced people and so on, and to the earthquake recovery efforts and so on. How difficult is it to work with governments and cultural ministries and so on in situations like that when they may be hostile to intervention from outside agencies and so on? Well, as you know, all emergency response is local. So we do rely on local governments, in fact, municipalities, to support logistics for cultural heritage because the uh, cultural heritage sector in itself does not have the necessary means or support for, for example, large-scale salvage operations or we need help for temporary storages, even to organize volunteer operations, security clearances. So all that is part of the issues and also cultural heritage is not at the moment part of international humanitarian aid setup. To overcome this, on a parallel level, ECROM has been working with the Directorate General of European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Organization, DG ECHO. We have also been working with UN OCHA, the Office for Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs. And we are also, as I said, in touch with these on-the-ground cultural first aiders so this is a complex network that we are trying to set up now in this situation with the help of, of course, some donor organizations so that the field teams are supported on the ground. They have necessary funds 
to carry out damage and risk assessments or to physically stabilize sites or talk to cultural bearers that have been dispersed as a result of this crisis. In order to do this more effectively, really it is all about ex-ante action, preparedness, preparedness and preparedness. So we'll be relying much on our networks, international as well as national, that we have laid down on the ground, especially to work and address some of the issues of transferring money or funds or uh, working with you know, certain communities in areas which are particularly insecure or where security could be a, a big risk. So this is uh, how we will be overcoming it. It's, there is no straight answer for this, but a multilateral organization such as ECROM, which does training on a sustained basis, leverages its alumni network in such situations to support emergency response on the ground. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about this sort of slogan or hashtag or whatever that I know is a very sort of core message, if you like, for you. It's, it's culture cannot wait. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, culture cannot wait. It's a core message for us. We think uh, culture is an integral part of sustainable humanitarian recovery and building back better. If we ignore the cultural dimension, we would be at the risk of treating people, as I said earlier, as mere biological entities with very limited needs of food, water and shelter. But people are much more than that. They are also, societies are formed based on social networks, on inherent knowledge or place-specific knowledge that is held by communities. And they're sustained through times, such as uh, old crises, through this, with the help of this knowledge and these kind of social networks and bonds. And we need to focus more on that. And in that sense, culture is really essential for sustainable development, for climate action, for peace and resilience. Aparna, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for your interest in ECROM's programs. You can contribute to the Disasters Emergency Committee's Turkey-Syria Earthquake Appeal at dec.org.uk. A PDF of Aparna Tandon's handbook, First Aid to Cultural Heritage in Times of Crisis, is available for free at ikrom.org. That's I-C-C-R-O-M.org. And you can read our reporting on the Turkey-Syria Earthquake Disaster at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, we explore the Alice Neal exhibition at the Barbican in London and a Navajo eye-dazzler blanket. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The Freeze Los Angeles Art Fair opened in a new venue, Santa Monica Airport, this week. It arrives as several galleries expand their presence in the city, two of them with transformations of historic car showrooms. Roberts Projects has taken over a warehouse near Los Angeles County Museum of Art, formerly known as the Max Barish Chrysler Plymouth showroom. House and Worth, meanwhile, is opening its second Los Angeles location in a triangular 1931 Spanish colonial revival building that was previously home to heritage classics, famous for sourcing rare Mercedes gullwings and roadsters. Meanwhile, Listen Gallery will open a new space in a former sex club in April. 
Museums are beginning to acquire non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, in earnest. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art revealed on Monday a promised gift of 22 works minted on the blockchain, a collection that it says is the first and largest of its kind to enter an American art museum. The donor is the collector with the alias Cosomo de Medici and is rumoured to be the rapper Snoop Dogg. The Centre Pompidou in Paris has announced the acquisition of a series of 18 NFTs from 13 prominent French and international artists, the first acquisition of its kind by a major French public museum. And 12 institutions, including the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and the House of Electronic Arts in Basel, have joined a fellowship called Web3 for the Arts and Culture that aims to engage with blockchain technology to preserve and promote cultural heritage. Violent protests erupted on the steps of Tate Britain in London last weekend as trans rights campaigners clashed with right-wing demonstrators over a drag queen storytelling event. Police officers had to form a corridor so visitors could get into the venue which remained open. The action was sparked by the appearance of Ada HD, the drag alias of Sab Samuel, who appeared at the London Museum as part of LGBTQ History Month in the UK. The row was fuelled by the Conservative Party life peer Emma Nicholson, who described the planned appearance by Ada HD as propaganda in an open letter. Roland Rudd, the chair of Tate Trustees, replied to Nicholson that the Tate is open to all. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Discover the defining art and design of the modern era at Christie's New York. This March, the contemporary New York sales highlight Leila Lan, Yoyo Kusama, Jeff Koons, Fernando Botero and more key artists from the post-war period to today. The season features The Art of Collecting, a Pacific Island connoisseur of art and design and Adam, works from the collection of Adam Lindemann, comprising boundary-pushing art and design from the renowned gallerist. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Alice Neal spent the best part of 40 years painting before gaining due recognition for her work in New York. A claim for her painting in Europe was even slower. There was no major public European museum exhibition until 2010, more than 25 years after her death. But a major survey of her work was shown first at the Centre Pompidou in Paris last year and has now arrived at the Barbican Art Gallery in London. I went to the Barbican to take a tour of the show with its curator, Eleanor Nairn. Eleanor, we're in the first room of the exhibition, but you haven't chosen to start at the beginning. You've actually started quite close to the end in one of her latest paintings, and we're looking at Alice Neal's self-portrait here. Why did you choose to begin with this work? I'm always very interested in how to open an exhibition because it's a real question of storytelling. And this exhibition really gives an overview of Alice Neal's life and work, But the beating pulse of it is about her politics and about how that played out across the course of her career. And there's politics with a capital P. You know, she's a Communist Party member from 1935. But there's also a subtler politics, which is about somebody who had a capacity to see courageously and somebody who allowed people to come and sit for her. And she really saw them too, and to understand how radical that would have felt for them at the time. So this self-portrait felt to me the most iconic example of that courage for looking. She starts it in 1975. It's the first full-scale self-portrait and the only one that she makes in her career. 
She's 75 at She's that point. She's 75 at that point. She says her cheeks are flushed in the image because she found it so damned hard, <laughs> you know. She's very reluctant to make it. And, and here she is, unvarnished, to paint herself naked at this point. She finishes it in 1980, around the time of her 80th birthday. And it is just the most extraordinary image. The only parallel I can think of is Maria Lasnig's great painting of herself naked with the gun, which would follow about 20 years after this. And there's a kind of tenderness to it, her body. You have pointed out, I think, very astutely that she leaves the canvas out, which is interesting. So... What yeah, she's you, got a paintbrush in one exactly. hand, a rag in the other. Yes. The, only, the thing that's missing is the canvas, but it's almost... Which is what we're looking at. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of trompe l'oeil happening in there. There's some kind of cleverness. And the only thing she's wearing are her glasses. And above her glasses is a raised eyebrow. And that raised eyebrow, even as I say it, gives me chills because it feels like she looks directly at us and is challenging us to meet her in this courageous space. It's really good because in a way what you get is her personality in many, many ways here. There's the toughness, this uncompromising character, which we'll hear more about because she had such a struggle through life. But on the other hand, there's the wit. She's famously witty. There's lots of delightful videos of her that you can watch (laughs) online of of her being funny and charming and everything else. And that arched eyebrow is a sort of an invitation, isn't it? It's, come on then, what do you make of this sort of thing? Exactly. And, And what do you intend to do what brick will you put in the wall here's what I've done what about you so let's move on to some earlier pictures so now we are moving quite a few years forward from the start of the show she's had a period in Cuba which on the one hand was a kind of moment of real emergence as an artist where she begins to flourish as an artist but then it ends in real tragedy doesn't it Anna tell us about that Yeah, I mean, she's had that year in Cuba in 1925. She's had her first child, Santillana, with her husband, Carlos Enriquez de Gomez. And unfortunately, the child dies. She dies of diphtheria, and there's a kind of added pathos about that because it's just a year before they invent the vaccine that could have saved her life. The doctors at that time, of course, medical advice being very different from what it would be today, advise her to get pregnant as soon as she can. That's the remedy that they suggest. So I kind of wince at that as an idea on its own. And they have quite quickly a second daughter, Isabetta. But New York, you know, even at this point, just coming up to the kind of big Wall Street crash you know, they are impoverished artists. They can barely afford to feed themselves, let alone a child. And Carlos decides in his wisdom that the best thing will be to take her to his family in Cuba. They are meant to follow on shortly afterwards. That doesn't happen. She proceeds very quickly to unravel. And she says this, we have this quote written on this wall, I didn't do anything but fall apart and go to pieces. And you can really imagine, I think, how that might have felt. And what's kind of rather remarkable then about this point, she spends time in a suicide ward. She's in quite intensive psychiatric care is that art becomes a method of recovery. So at first, she says, that she would tell some of the doctors that she's a famous artist. She'd had an exhibition in Cuba, and they thought she was hysterical. And she thought this was funny, that they couldn't believe her. But quite quickly, somebody recognises that she has real talent and gets materials for her, and she begins, art becomes a method for her to work her way out of that 
whole, really. And she's in Greenwich Village at this time, and she begins to paint the people around her, right? And we're looking at what is quite an extraordinary <laughs> painting of Joe Gould. Who was Joe Gould? He's basically a Greenwich Village eccentric, right? He was absolutely an eccentric. So this room is about, as you say, the kind of Greenwich Village bohemia, and we are pretty much entirely surrounded by naked people. And (laughs) I think there's something about her having gone through this psychiatric collapse and the idea of clothing feeling like such a pretense, you know, so fussy on the other side of that, wanting to present something incredibly raw. So here is Joe Gould with not one, two, three, but five (laughs) sets of genitalia. He was what was then referred to sometimes as a Greenwich Village bum. He was highly educated, had gone to Harvard, extremely intelligent, and kind of chose to live on the streets of Greenwich Village. And where others would throw him out, he would sometimes say, ship ahoy, as he arrived on Alice Neal's door. And she would give him clothes, she would feed him, she would spend time with him. I think she was very amused by him. And one of his key qualities was that he had a kind of pride in his sexual prowess, which is part of what she's very amusingly wanting to capture in this painting. But it's worth remembering this is a painting made in 1933. It's 13 years after women have gained the right to vote in America. This is a time at which for a woman to make this painting, it is beyond the word radical. And it's not exhibited as a result of that for another 40 years after it's made because people see it as so scandalous. That's astonishing, isn't it? And and also it has a biography of its own, an intriguing element of biography because a lover of Alice Neal's at that time basically slashes all her canvases, sets fire to works of hers in the studio, and we see the the sort of stains of this process on that it's singed. Exactly. It's the most appalling thing. So her lover, Kenneth Doolittle, who was a sometime opium addict, gets into a jealous rage over the attention she's receiving from other men and one day goes into her studio and slashes and burns the vast majority of work that she's made up until that point. I think anyone who's an artist would shiver at the concept of that sheer destruction. And, and this is an example of a work that she decides to salvage, to hold on to, to continue to exhibit. But it means at the top of the painting, we're seeing this incredibly vivid scarlet and this quite sort of detailed comic face for Joe Gould. And at the bottom, we're seeing a canvas really kind of stripped bare by the flames. Let's move on to another painting made in New York a bit later in the 1930s. Now, one of the things that Alice Neal does is go onto the streets in all sorts of ways. She is painting the streets, she is painting people, but she's also painting really important, radically political moments in that time. And here we're looking at a protest. Tell us what this painting depicts. So this is a painting called Nazis Murder Jews. And that statement is emblazoned on a placard that's being held by these protesters at at the front of the painting. And it's a painting she made in 1936 after she'd attended a torch-lit parade organised by the Artists' Union wanting to, you know, speak out against this alarming rise of fascism. Of course, they are thinking about Germany, but they're also thinking about Spain. You know, she's joined the Communist Party just a year before in 1935. Many members of the Communist Party are themselves fighting in Spain at that time against Franco and the regime. And I think what's remarkable about this period of her work is that she pivots from making 
these very radical nudes like the Joe Gould that we were looking at because she's part of the WPA program. So the WPA program, started by Roosevelt in this period to alleviate unemployment amongst artists, is a complete lifeline. I mean, they are literally on the breadline, and suddenly making art can become waged labour, but it comes with one restriction, which is they can't paint anyone naked. It's the only rule, and she must have been appalled at this idea (laughs) because it was pretty much all she was doing. And so she pivots to making these really remarkable street scenes. So behind us, we have paintings such as Magistrate's Court after she's been arrested for protesting with the Artists' Union or You Need a Biscuit Strike from where armed constabulary are released onto protesters. So she's really wanting to capture this high pitch of protest and political ferment in the 30s. And of course, it feels all too relevant to our own moment and the strike action that we're seeing on the news every day. It does, it really does. But it's also really like instructive, isn't it, about that kind of political moment because the WPA programme forbids the depiction of nudes. But here we're looking at an image in which there is a hammer and sickle very clearly displayed on a banner. So there's a curious thing, knowing what comes later in in American culture, that here is a very open kind of communist-infused painting being made in the United States. Absolutely, and we're seeing raised fists of solidarity in the front of this. So this is a very rousing picture And it is a reminder of that particular kind of window of politics in the 1930s and the extraordinary things that Roosevelt does in order to alleviate the plight of everyday citizens having to deal with the ramifications of the Great Depression. Again, very close to what we're thinking about today with how an ordinary person gets through a cost-of-living crisis. Well, let's go into another room where there is a more intimate study relating to this whole culture. So now we're looking at the portrait of Harold Cruz, Eleanor. Who was he? So there are two answers to that question, really. One is an answer of who is he in 1950, at the point at which Alice Neal paints this picture. And there's another about who would he become. So to start with the first, at this point, he's working as an orderly in Harlem Hospital. He's also doing various other bits of odd jobs. Uh, He's working as a copy boy for various Marxist publications. And he comes to sit for Alice Neal. We imagine that she probably met him through the Communist Party. He was himself a member, perhaps also through the Jefferson School, where she attended a number of classes. And she paints him here as this very ruminous figure. He he tenderly touches one cheek with his hand. He looks slightly wistfully off into the distance. And that's a rather amazing image because the person he becomes is an extraordinary intellectual. So later in 1967, he writes what is considered his magnus opus, a quite controversial anti-assimilationist text called The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. And he then goes on to be a very important figure in academic departments across the US. And one of the things I love about it is that Neil herself is not recognised at this point yet. You know, she, she doesn't sell her works, she doesn't have a gallery, she, she doesn't have press. And so somehow she has a sense of the artist she'll become and she also has a sense 
of the intellectuals and the luminaries that the people who sit for her will become as well. Do they provide a kind of intellectual framework, a critical framework around her work? For instance, is Harold Cruz writing about her work? Is there a kind of network of criticism around her? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the key figures from the Communist Party do become also interesting, insightful figures in relation to her work. So next door, for instance, we see Mike Gold, who wrote a key text for her when he organised a show at the New Playwrights Theatre in 1951. Harold Cruz was someone who she fell out of touch with briefly and then reconnected with in later life and wrote this charming letter to him saying what a delight it had been to see him again. Tell me everything about what you were thinking and feeling you know yeah, I love Neal, that because it's almost yeah. like that's what she's doing when she's sitting in front of him here too right she she's, wants everything she's, yeah she wants everything she doesn't want banalities or platitudes she wants a person to arrive and to sit and to give her everything and, and tell me, I mean, this, is, this is the first point where I want to talk about a particular formal development in her work, which is the hands. Yes. I love Alice Neal's hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does she ever say anything about hands, about whether they were a tricky subject for her or to what degree she wanted them to be a form of expression? Because they are so expressive. You're so right. And I think they have become a particularly beloved part of Neal's work. And as we look around this room, which is called anarchic humanism and is devoted to other political figures, we can see Mercedes Arroyo with one hand draped over the chair and Philip Bonoski with a hand draped over the table and Harold Caton with his hand with these amazing rings uh, on his knuckles clasped around his knee. So you're quite right that she uses hands as a vehicle to express something of who this person is. Famously in the history of painting, artists haven't much liked painting hands because they're fiddly and (laughs) if you were to be working on a commission, by the time you got to the hands, you might want to rush them in. There are some wonderful Freud paintings in which they're posed with their hands behind their back because that was (laughs) going to be a stage too far. I think there's also another formal quality of this painting that's worth looking at, which is this very distinctive abstract background And we have next to Harold Cruz this quote which says, I'm not against abstraction, do you know what I'm against? Saying that man himself has no importance. And one of the qualities that hasn't often been given much attention in Neil's work is if you were to remove Harold Cruz from this picture, what you would be left with is a kind of inverted Rothko painting. (laughs) So there are rather remarkable kind of abstract qualities to the backgrounds in many of these works. She, as she said, was not against abstraction, but she felt that as a fashion, as a trend, it was dangerous because this was a period in which the threat to people was very real and she wanted to fight for them. And we're going to see some more formal daring when we head downstairs into the larger spaces. So we're now in the downstairs spaces, which are always much larger in the Barbican. You've developed a kind of narrative thread through your exhibitions, actually, now, where where you tend to get the kind of earlier period upstairs, and then there's this breath of fresh air almost as you come down the stairs into these larger spaces. Tell us about that, Eleanor. So that's always been a really critical question for me, is what is this break about? When you come down those stairs, it should mark, in my mind, a critical juncture in an artist's career. So in the Lee Krasner show that some might have seen in 2019, Pollock had died, she'd taken over the barn, she could spread her wings and a whole new era of painting was born. For Alice Neal, it's a rather interesting moment in 1959 where she goes to see a therapist, Dr Anthony Sterrett, 
And she confesses that she wants to put her work before the world and that she's actually been remarkably shy. And he helps her to build the courage to do that. So that begins with the Frank O'Hara portrait, which we show first, the first sort of more celebrated figure from that period that she paints. And it continues with some of these other remarkable paintings we have in this in this space from the 1960s which range from someone like the taxi driver Abdul Rahman who's on the far left of that wall to Gerard Malanga who was the great kind of factory star and poet yeah absolutely and, and there are two things that really strike me when I enter in this room one is the scale goes up the canvases are bigger but then also there's a sort of daring formal thing about leaving stuff out and we've seen that in the self-portrait as well there are blank areas of canvas and here we're seeing that in its most extreme form aren't we and this is a portrait of James Hunter from 1965. Absolutely so this is a really important formal development in her career so this is a rather extraordinary story of a young man called James Hunter who comes to sit for her in 1965. He sits once. It's very unusual. If we think of a painting like the fabulous new John Perrault, that took 17 sittings. So she begins by painting his head. She sketches in the rest of the body and the chair. And he is then drafted into the Vietnam War. So he is never able to return. And she decides that she wants to leave the painting with the rest of the architecture unfilled in. And that this will be her statement about the unknown future of so many of these young men, especially young black American men who were drafted into that war at that point when Lyndon Johnson is wanting to escalate troops on the ground. We were talking a bit earlier about some of the archive research that's gone into this show. I've had great fun raiding through FBI files, census records, doing oral histories with family members, trying to tell new stories about some of the people who sat for her. And one of the most urgent questions was, what became of James Hunter? Of course, it's a very common name. And we worked with some of the war museums in the US to be able to trace all of the draft and military records and found a match for a man called James Leroy Hunter who did survive Vietnam. So that was one of the most remarkable things to discover in the making of the show. And and we've hung this work on its own wall, on its own colour, as a kind of separate space because it is such a distinctive moment both for him and for her career. So let's go and look at a much more famous sitter now. So now we're looking at arguably Alice Neal's most famous portrait, I would say, and it's of Andy Warhol. But this is not celebrity Andy, glitzy Andy, is it? Absolutely not. And and one of the things that's so striking about this painting is here is a man who described nudity as a threat to his existence. I mean, there is arguably... No one who was more vain in that New York underground scene than Andy Warhol. And yet here he is with his shirt off. He's revealing those terrible scars from the assassination attempt by Valerie Solanus. He's wearing a surgical corset, which appears almost like a cummerbund in this image. And then almost as if to set off that naked flesh, he's wearing these brown trousers and these smart, shiny brogues 
There's a great Dylan Moran line where he describes the French as, as being naked from the waist down to emphasise their nakedity. And I, I often think of that in relation to this, that we have lots of other paintings in this room of fully naked figures. And somehow the fact that Warhol is ambivalent, he's half-dressed, including shoes, and half-laid bare, only accentuates the extraordinary vulnerability. And of course, his eyes are closed. Mm. You know, for somebody to sit for her with closed eyes is such an act of trust. It's, it's really a remarkably tender image. Given the sort of violence that has been visited on his body, the face is extraordinarily beatific, isn't it? It's an image of Carmen. I, when I reviewed it, I said I felt that it was almost like a death mask. There is something kind of deathly about it because you see these terrible scars. And, you know, read any doctor's report and they say it's amazing that Warhol survived. It's and it, extraordinary. You really see that and for him to have that kind of tranquility that you're pointing to, in his expression, I think gives us an insight into what Neil was able to do in the studio. She never has a professional studio space, even when she can afford one. She invites people into the clutter of her domestic life. She wants them in her home. And then many of her sitters describe how her talk was a way of sort of lulling them. All the time she would be talking to them about her life, about her victories, <laughs> her conquests, and all the time asking them questions. And somehow Warhol seems to be serene in the midst of all of that. And we also feel that he knows he is being held by an artist he admires. He knows that whatever painting comes of this, it's by an artist he admires. And Alice would urge people to remove their clothes, but is it right that Warhol himself suggested that he took his shirt off or took his top off? I think we don't have that much clarity about the exchange in the sitting. And, and you know, what Neil really wanted was a person in a kind of unvarnished or unpretentious way. So, yes, we have examples. Cindy Nemser and Chuck behind us is a great example of where Cindy Nemser gives this account of her saying, oh, you don't want all that Mickey Mouse jewellery. She tells Chuck that he looks like a dentist wearing that terrible pinstripe suit. So she was very good at luring people out of their clothes when she wanted to. But Mary Garrard, who's just next to that portrait, comes in from the cold in her scarf and her hat and her peacoat. And Alice Neal says, I want you just like that. So in a way, it's not really about the clothing. It's about the fact that she's trying to capture a person before they've arranged themselves. That's really interesting. You talked about the setting that she invites people into her apartment. One of the lovely things about this room, I think, is the way that you see the different treatments of that mm. apartment. There's a stripy chair that reappears. Warhol is sitting on a kind of couch where it's barely described. It's just lines, but in others you get to see the full... It looks like a leather couch or a suede couch or something like that. But I love that, that you feel that, you know, it's her terrain all the way through. Definitely. And that's one of the many ways in which I think we could say these are dual portraits. They are a portrait of the sitter and they are a portrait of Neil. And you cannot ask one person to open up. Part of what's so thrilling about these works is that they are about human exchange. They are about a gaze being met and returned. They're about a person being hosted in another person's home. There's a kind of reciprocity to them, which feels just like it glows out of these. And one of the things I wanted for the exhibition, you know, we're in a room that is not hung on a white wall, as most Alice Neal shows have been. There's a lot of character to this show. 
But I also wanted it to be homely in certain ways. I wanted people to feel like they were being invited into a personal space. I wanted to ask you about one more formal thing, which is so delightful, and I know artists love this. It's the blue lines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know Chantal Joffe loves the blue lines. Yes. Um, did Alice Neal ever describe why blue lines around the figure were so important to her? And Warhol, you really see it. You see it in the self-portrait and so on. Yes, you're quite right, because it becomes this very kind of signature motif at a certain point in her work in the 60s and 70s. And she really barely talks about it at all, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't conscious of it as a device that she used in the painting. And there are many different ways that you could read them. It's, I think, worth being attentive to the fact that it's a very electric blue. This is not a dull or chalky blue. It's a blue that feels vivid and full of life. And for me, it became a kind of symbol of our boundaries or unbounded selves you know what are our edges where do I end and you begin the carbon dioxide that I breathe out is breathed in by a plant in the same room you know that sense that we are all so deeply intertwined and that blue edge just seems like a kind of really clever way of giving that impression. Lastly I wanted to just reflect on this wonderful thing about Alice Neal's work which is it feels like of course, depictions of people in history at periods of time and so on. But it's so alive and it's so ahead of its time in its diversity, in the way that she'd approach race and class and sexuality and everything else so openly and and so much unlike so many of her peers, for instance. I think that's such an important point and it connects again to that blue line because in a way, when I look at it, I think part of what she's getting at is this idea that us being individuals is a myth. It's a capitalist myth, the idea that we are each in charge of our own destinies. And Alice is a committed Marxist. She's a communist. You know, she believes that man makes history, but not in conditions of his own making. And so I think she understood that we all belong to the same soup you know she understood this kind of that we don't all get to experience the same chances in life but that we are all full of glory and we are all wretched and that's why she describes herself as an anarchic humanist you know she's on the side of people And it's easy for us to forget now, in 2023, that when we're upstairs looking at those Havana paintings, we're looking at paintings that are 100 years old, and they look like they could have been painted yesterday. And when we see these people who sat in her home, often we're looking at a period in time when racial segregation was still in place in New York, when it was illegal to be gay, when there were so many basic civil rights that people had yet to fight for. And she really understood and championed individuals. And I think that's why her work has come to have such a universal appeal. People love to love Alice Neal. And I think that's why, because she feels loved by them. Eleanor, thank you so much. Thank you.
Alice Neal, hot off the griddle, is at the Barbican Art Gallery in London until the 21st of May. And a small but lovely book accompanying the show, edited by Eleanor and published by Prestel, is available at the exhibition now, more widely in the UK from the 16th of March and from the 11th of April in the US. It's priced £24.99 or $29.95. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Today, the Bar Graduate Centre in New York opens the exhibition shaped by the loom weaving worlds in the American Southwest. It's the first show to explore the American Museum of Natural History's historic collection of textiles made on the Navajo Nation by the Diné, as the Navajo people call themselves. Among the items in the show is a Germantown blanket known as an eye dazzler, made around 1900. Hadley Jensen is a postdoctoral fellow in Museum Anthropology at the Bard Graduate Centre and the American Museum of Natural History, and she's curated the show alongside the Diné master weavers Linda Teller-Pete and Barbara Teller-Ornellis. Jensen told me about this vividly coloured blanket. Hadley, to begin with, I'd like you to tell us more about the Navajo Nation and the terminology around the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is actually the largest sovereign nation in the U.S. It spans about 27,000 square miles across New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. And is it right that the Navajo Nation broadly actually corresponds to the land that was occupied by those people before the settler colonialists arrived? The Navajo Nation currently refers to the sovereign nation, But previously, there was an ancestral territory that the Diné occupied and were then moved to a reservation that was a government-sanctioned reservation. And now they occupy what was a large portion of the ancestral territory that they originally held. And the term Diné, that's an original term from the Navajo language. And is it interchangeable or what do the Navajo people prefer to be called? So Diné is how the Navajo people refer to themselves. We use it in the exhibition to refer to people, to culture, but we often use Navajo somewhat interchangeably, but we use that more often to refer to objects or artworks. And we're going to explore one such object now, and it's an intriguing piece. It's made in 1900 and it's a Germantown blanket. What does Germantown mean? I mean, it's hard to choose one favourite piece, but when I first started to explore this collection in 2018, this particular piece stood out to me just because of the vibrant colours and patterns. So this item was made with Germantown yarn, which was produced by an eastern mill and first made available to Diné weavers in 1868 and 1870. So the blanket is uh, made by a Diné artist, but the yarn itself was manufactured by an Eastern mill. And how local, if you like, how unique to the Diné people were the colours, the dyes that inform this amazing, vivid colour that we see when we look at this particular object? Earlier Navajo weavings were primarily made with more muted colours of uh, natural wool, or cochineal and indigo, which are the kinds of deep crimson and reds that you find in some of the earlier weavings, um, and dark blues, of course. And so Germantown yarn provided a new color palette for Diné weavers to work with that really allowed them to expand the kinds of designs and patterns that they were creating. 
And this is referred to as an eye dazzler. And is it right that that's a very particular group of works that are called eye dazzlers, even though there are others that dazzle the eyes? The eye dazzlers is a very select group. Is that right? Correct. That term refers to weavings that were created beginning in the, the 1880s. And it's an aesthetic that refers to this combination of zigzag patterns and very bright colours. Right. And, and it really is a dazzling experience. And it makes me think about all the different properties that were later used in abstraction, for instance, and in optical art of the 1960s and so on. These extraordinary effects of layering of colours and using the particular techniques of the loom to illuminate these incredible combinations of colour and shape. Exactly. And this piece, I wish you could see it in person in the exhibition because you see it on the wall and it almost suggests the idea of movement and just the combination of these patterns and the central motif, which was influenced by serapes from Mexico. This kind of serrated diamond motif that the weaver has expanded is really stunning when you see it in person. I'm sure it is. In terms of the Navajo Nation at the time, around 1900, can you explain the conditions in which these pieces would have been produced? So Germantown yarn, as I mentioned, was first made available in 1868 and 1870 during a period of enforced imprisonment at the hands of the U.S. government. And the Diné were imprisoned in Bosque Redondo in eastern New Mexico between 1863 and 1868. And at that time, they were basically using the materials that were provided to them and that they had available. And so one of those things was Germantown yarn. And so that is how Germantown blankets were originally developed following this period at Bosque Redondo. And then they were moved onto a reservation. They successfully negotiated a treaty with the U.S. government called the Treaty of 1868. And this period of Navajo weaving is so interesting because it wasn't influenced by traders or trading posts and it was an aesthetic that was really developed by Diné weavers in response to new materials and design influences. And how would the blankets be used on a day-to-day basis? Or were they much more, for instance, ceremonial? Or were they mounted as sort of aesthetic objects? Or... Weavings were made for community use as wearing blankets. And then the train and railroad tourism came into New Mexico in the late 1870s and 1880s. And that really changed the market for Navajo weaving. And so weavers were very adept at responding to market demands. And so this particular weaving is part of the U.S. Hollister collection at the American Museum of Natural History. And that's a particularly well-known collection. Hollister actually published a catalog of these weavings in 1903. Um, And this piece is illustrated in that 1903 publication. Is it right that this and other objects have not been on display for a number of decades? That's correct. Actually, not since they were accessioned by the museum in 1910 and 1911. Why? Well, they have more or less been in museum storage because the American Museum of Natural History 
has many different exhibition spaces, but they had a Southwest Hall that closed in 1960 and was never reopened. So a selection of their Diné or Navajo weaving collection has been seen in the Southwest Hall, but for the most part, it's been in museum storage. And that's why this exhibition is such an extraordinary opportunity to display weavings, of course, for the public, but also for Diné artists to reconnect with what they feel are the living legacies of their ancestors. Absolutely. One of the things that if you're not in the US and you don't have a familiarity with how museums are structured, etc. in the US, you might wonder, you know, why is this not in the collection of the Met as opposed to the American Museum of Natural History, for instance? And, and I guess that might suggest a sort of an attitude towards the culture of the Native American peoples. It seems to me to be pretty problematic. Yes, we could have a long conversation about that, <laughs> but it's interesting because the Met did have their own collection of Navajo weavings that were transferred to the American Museum of Natural History. And so based on collecting practices at the time, the AMNH was trying to acquire as many items as they could in the 1880s, 1890s, and around the turn of the century. So their curators were actively collecting, especially in the Southwest, sending expeditions. But it's interesting that some of these items were catalogued as fine art objects and others were considered sort of ethnographic specimens. It tells us a lot about the kind of museological decisions that were being made in that period, right? Exactly, in the cultures of collecting and display. Absolutely. So tell us more about the show then. This obviously is one item of very many. And is it right that you're bringing it right up to the present day and looking at people using these traditions to make contemporary objects? Yes, so the majority of the weavings in the exhibition are from the AMNH's historic collection, and those items date from about 1850 to 1910. But a key component of the exhibition has been to create these connections between historical and contemporary works to reveal the continuities and transformations that are inherent in Navajo weaving as an art form, but also as a cultural practice and a lived experience. And you also have photographs by Raphael Begay, who's a Diné photographer, accompanying the images, the other objects in the show, right? Yes. So we have a selection of Begay's photographs, and we also have a series of digital prints that I commissioned for the exhibition by a New Mexico-based artist named Darby Raymond Overstreet. The first floor is designed to really immerse people in place and to offer a larger cultural context for the items on view. So there's a selection of prints and photographs and immersive media, and the second floor has all the textiles. Hadley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest is at the Bard Graduate Centre in New York until the 9th of July. An online exhibition featuring an interactive catalogue of approximately 250 items from the American Museum of Natural History's collection of Navajo textiles will be available later this month at bgc.bard.edu. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Aparna, Eleanor and Hadley. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.